Well, I never expected to be uh, back here quite so quite so soon as I am, Patrick. Um, mm -hmm. Such was the popularity of your interview. We invited um, questions from the floor, and we've been inundated. So, um, picked a few, and you've graciously agreed to answer them. So, I think we better crack straight on. Okay, I'll have a go. Okay. Uh, firstly, a Stephen Adamson says, "Do you have a favourite story from all your betting experiences?" Um. I suppose it has to be the one in the William Hill box. You know, it's it's something to. Uh, it's nice to take money off a bookmaker, but you know, it's it's, it's sort of a bit of a one-off experience to be actually you know sat in there, almost their premises whilst doing so. Um, so, this was the York Dante meeting. It wasn't that long after I made my comeback from the from the crime problem, <clears throat> and um, my friend Martin had an invite for two to go to the William Hill box at the York Dante meeting, and that day um, we'd had singles, doubles, and trebles. Singles, doubles, and a treble on three horses in particular. Um, and with it being this size meeting, and back then when you could get on, we'd done pretty well. So on arrival, my face wasn't really well known at the time. And um, so, you know, uh, I don't think John Brown, who was, I think, the chief executive, really, I don't think he twigged on seeing my face. But when Martin introduced me and said my name, he did a great big double take and sort of, you know, we're letting the fox into the hen house here. Um, but um, yeah, proceeded. And you know, we always remember the stories where we win, of course. Um, but first one won, second one won, and, uh, and Martin was outside talking to John, and he said, oh, I'm very worried about, you know, it turns out we've got doubles and trebles going around the country on these two horses, going to two more later on, they've already come to plenty, and um, oh, he sort of, back then, the winds of you know, size sort of really mattered to me, so, uh, um, no, they still do, but they, they mattered more, um, so um, I, uh, I, I'd found a little corner, I was busy working things out, and Martin came, we didn't say a lot, but he came and sort of just walked towards me, a little smile on his face, and just he knew I wouldn't really be a drinker during the races normally, but he just picked up a bottle of champagne that was nearby and just looked me in the eye and shoved it in my direction. The, the third leg didn't win, um, but we, there were big odds on the first one, so we, we still did nicely out of that. Excellent. Okay, um, Shane, no second name. Um, are certain personality types more likely to do well at betting than others? I'll carry on. Can creative artistic people win at betting as well as the machine like maths cruncher artist types may be good at pattern recognition in betting markets what are your thoughts well no offense taken at the uh corner of him uh, what was it a machine something maths machine cruncher. like maths cruncher oh, yeah that's a very harsh very harsh <laughs> um yes there is an answer to that the um the creative artistic type should become race readers if that's that's your calling and if you want to be successful on the horses because that's something that can't be crunched now, you think about the huge amounts of money and uh, hours and time that's been put into self-driving cars. Well, those things are you know, not nearly as subtle as the tiny movements in a horse race that can make the difference between something being positive or negative. And so there'll never be the resources to solve that, I wouldn't have thought, by sort of computer methods. It might be one day, but, but in, terms of, in terms of what an artistic person do, that's there to appreciate these minor subjective details. Is the horse liking the ground? Is it liking the distance? Is it liking the going? Uh, the, the going the, the track? Um, is it? Um, is the horse in a positive mental state? Um, what, what's in the mind of the horse and the other horses? What's in the mind of the jockey and the other jockeys? There's so much to interpret there. You know, is there something in hand that's hidden? Is is the horse just idling? Um, you know, there's so much to interpret there. It's very subjective, and that's something that you know, whilst the analytical, analytical people will try to break down a horse race into precisely defined parts that's only a bit of a fudge i would think even even with the most sophisticated teams um so yeah that's definitely where you'd want to go for an artistic type okay this next one not including the 20 odd calls i had 
everyone wants to know who is Branson in the <laughs> previous interview. Well, we shouldn't say who is Branson because I want to clarify that. There may have been, a, you know, it's, it's in, in putting the babbling away quite quickly. I, I may not have explained it in a way that everybody took in straight away. Um, I'm not saying the person concerned is like Richard Branson, who I made it clear I disapproved of. And I made really quite complimentary comments about the, the hidden person I alluded to. And I, and I stand by that. Um, the point is, it, the similarity is only that some people have this tremendous Branson factor where they are viewed extremely positively in terms of the image they create. A small percentage of population, maybe two, three percent, have that ability to just be viewed incredibly positively. So I, I saw lots of guests on this and I had said it was to do with selecting horses. So we're talking the selection advisory type thing. So as I say, the, the guesses to do with bookmakers and professional punters were, were nowhere near. Um, it was someone, as I say, an excellent chap all round, but in the very early part of his career, there was a reference to operating, uh, you know, advisory services under all sorts of different guises, which surely isn't the fairest. Um, but that was one incident in what's by all accounts has been an absolutely excellent life um, and, you know, probably a much better person than myself and most of us. Um, but the point was that the reason why I mentioned that person was not that person was like Richard Branson, in terms of what well, my opinion is, I have a low opinion of that person, but that even within your betting per, per people interviews, you had an example of where if somebody's got that characteristic, if there was one time in the life where they erred, that they would get a pass, that it wouldn't attract any comment. I think the, say, the point I was making is that the same thing said by the vast majority of your interviewees would have attracted a different comment and saying you know, that, that's, that's one tiny part of someone's life. But I think that's a, it's an interesting, throws an interesting light on the fact that when you're assessing people, um, you do need to be careful that a very positive public image, very public image, can, um, or very, not even in private, the way somebody projects themselves extremely well, that can be something that can be uh, deceptive. As I don't think it's, that's a person concerned you want to be, uh, to be careful of, definitely, but elsewhere you will find people who have that Branson factor, um, who, who you need to be very careful because they, like, in my view, Mr. Branson himself, might be able to choose to exploit that. Okay, the next two we've combined, they're from George McDonough and Kevin Dean. So combine the questions. Do you believe that betting each way to regular terms is better than those boosted given extra places but lower odds? And combine the question, backing each way in a 16 to 20 run a competitive handicap, which terms would you back at assuming the same price? A quarter, one, two, three, or a fifth, one, two, three, four, five? Yeah, a quarter, one, two, three, four, maybe, or a fifth, five. Uh, you'd have a fifth, five over a quarter, four. Um, so to take an example, let's imagine a 24 runner race and all the horses are 20 to 1. So there's a, there's a margin for the bookmaker on the win side. And you've got a choice of a quarter four or a fifth five. Well, if you imagine you had a, a pound each way on all the horses, under the quarter four, you'd back four winners and you'd get five to one because it's a quarter of 20 to one. Under the fifth five, you'd back five winners because five of your horses would be placed and you'd get four to one. So four winners at five to one, five winners at four to one, it sounds the same, but it's not because you get your stakes back. So on the place side, the fifth five would return you 25 pounds. You'd actually make it, even though you backed all the horses in an overround book, you'd actually make a profit on the place. Whereas in the quarter situation, you'd only back four winners at five to one, you'd only get 24 pounds back. Um, so it's, you know, it's, it's a sort of 4% difference or thereabouts. If you take a shorter price, imagine there was an eight to one shot in that race. Uh, under the quarter, you'd get paid out at two to one. Uh, and under the fifth, you get paid out at 1.6 to 1. So the quarter of the odds would pay 25% more. But that's in terms of the profit. In terms of the return, 
the quarter the odds would return three pounds and the fifth the odds would return two pounds sixty and then the difference goes down to about 15 percent um, but under the five places although, although the, the quarter places is paying you about 15 percent more total return on that eight to one shot the five places means that you're nearly 25 percent more likely to collect it's not quite 25 percent because if a horse is at the front of the market in a in a big handicap it's more likely to win than be fifth but in either direction either with the eight to one shot or the 20 to one shot overall you are better with the fifth five okay kane w at what point in the day do you start to really trust a price move to know something you don't um it's not something that there's a particular point it's gradual during the day you'd, you'd, you'd choose to gradually trust more as the market got more mature but there wouldn't be a, a particular tipping point the gradual Okay, now Colin Horde. Uh, Patrick talks a lot, of, a lot about working efficiently, but how should recreational punters work efficiently to improve their betting? Um, I think analyse your process. I think uh, you know, take a step back and be willing to not be always on the mouse wheel and think about how could I do this quicker? Is there a way I could get a shortcut? Am I repeatedly doing the same thing in a way that I could find faster or find somebody else to do it for me or find a service that cheaper provides that um, and just be, be taking a step back and having a think about it um, I know somebody who's not in horse racing and not a particularly big business that he runs but he actually appointed a chairman um, for his business where he, he actually met the person once a month and had a meeting with his with his chairman paid him a small he was, he was a retired very successful businessman who was just looking for some things to do happy for a small retainer and, and he met him one and felt that was very valuable that he had somebody to report to and as a sounding block and i'm not suggesting you do that but to some extent almost imagine being your own chairman that every so often every couple of weeks every month reflect on the situation and are the ways you can improve it one little thing i'll add in to some of the sort of things about keeping your brain bright um don't be frightened to just go and completely shut down even have a snooze for 10 minutes you're going to be falling asleep for an hour and that's affecting your sleep patterns. But it doesn't do any harm to have a... If, you, if your brain is really, tar, really tired at the end of a long session of study or whatever, four or five hours, it doesn't harm to try and completely switch off. Set the alarm for 10 minutes time and just almost doze off or just rest. But you've got to, as I say, occasionally stop, occasionally rest and, uh, and step back and reflect. Okay, now Tom Weeks, do you play on the show on course exchange, etc., when high liquidity but with the risk of taking a worse price? Or do you show your hand early in the morning and take what you can at the right price? I'd be more for waiting. Um, I, I think the bookmakers are far more likely to lay you later in the day. Um, and, uh, you know, the grabbing the price has got more and more difficult. Um, and, uh, yeah, generally speaking, it, it does involve you thinking about how you're going to form your selections. If you're going with the crowd and everything, then, but, you know, if it, a lot of people have their strategies based on that. And it may be better to have a, a reflect on, you know, there, are, there are people who think, oh, we can't possibly beat the afternoon markets. But that's perhaps because they've been thinking in certain ways and thinking down the same ways as everybody else. Whereas if you're more thinking, what type of horse tends to get overbacked? Where's the value? Where's the value against that one that, yeah, I might be seeing some of those horses that go in from, you know, four to one to seven to four. And how I sort of might have been able to predict those and thinking that's a... But what about those occasions when there's a horse that's an obvious shortener, but you've got some doubts? Is that maybe making the market for something else? You know, later in the day, you know, when the markets have reshifted, it might be a different horse that's overpriced than the one you would have backed if you were a 9am player. Okay. Now, Gambling Man Dave, you'd like to know, if you were to meet yourself at 15, what would your advice be? And what, do you have, what would you have done differently? And why and where to start if you were a novice? 
if I went back to 15, had advice at 15, the advice, yeah, the advice I'd give myself is to do something back then completely different. Because there's one or two industries I've thought about over time that just have not been well handled by analytical people. The two best examples I've you know, said before about this are weather and satellite navigation. They're both catching up now, but the algorithms that have run those down the years have been hopeless. I mean, satellite navigation for decades barely got into the business of peak traffic, uh, the business of roadworks, the business of you know how one A road is not the same as another A road. Just you know, sort of dinosaur things. It was lasting for decades, and you know, it's only recently, in the very last few years, that they've really started to improve on that. Um, and, and weather, you know, an industry that has, seems to have no performance standards whatsoever. Everybody just sings about the days they were right. Uh, apps talk about their convenience and this, that, and the other, but no figures to prove they're better. And without even studying weather as a, from a meteorological perspective, just as an analyst saying, well, this model says this, this model says this, but looking at in which circumstances is, is which forecast correct and how do you mix the, <coughs> the different models to come up with the best possible answer, along with the information from long-term averages and that sort of thing. That's something if both of those subjects are things that if I think if I'd put in half the time I put into studying horse racing, I think there would have been, you know, don't worry, I'm not, I'm not regretting going into it because I've had a wonderful time in horse racing. There's been some amazing experiences and it's a fascinating business of fascinating people. But just in terms of, you know, sort of if you just wanted to be successful, perhaps for less work, uh, that would be going now. I think those opportunities have closed down. And funnily enough, going back to what I said about the artistic thing, there's aspects of horse racing that the, that the crunchers, hopefully I'm not just a cruncher, and I can, you know, do spend a lot of time reading races, um, and hopefully there that, that, that horse racing is quite suitable now. Um, so talking about a novice now, I think the biggest thing is don't run before you can walk. You need to take it steady. Ideally, you want to be starting not as a professional, starting as somebody who um, you know, you, you, you've got a regular income coming in, you're doing it as a hobby, and you're learning the trade. And you're just taking it gradually. You're not bothered about how many bets you have or trying to win. Wouldn't be over bothered by keeping my stats of exactly whether one month one was better. But sure, write them all down and make sure you've got your betting under control. But I'd be betting for very small sums and just thinking this is an apprenticeship of learning, learning, learning. Neil Price would like staking. He'd like to know some actual figures. So say from a £1,000 betting bank, what would your maximum bet be? How do you decide what your stake's going to be? I'd like to know the actual mechanics you use to arrive at your desired stake for each individual bet, please. Okay, so for a, a bank of that size, it'd be very different to how I'd have to approach it. Um, it's all about um, you know, being careful with your bank and that sort of thing. There's, there's stuff you can read up if you look at the Kelly criterion, uh, that covers it. But I can give you a bit of help with that because that talks about how you pick a stake based on your bank based on the odds of the horse and based on the actual odds of the horse. Now, the trouble is, if you approach that, um, as some people would read that, there's a danger you'll be too bold because you'll say this horse is four to one and I think the true odds is two to one. But you'd only treat it as that if your profit margin is genuine, generally that high. If you were, if, if when you thought a horse was two to one, it did actually win 33% of the time. Now, for nobody ever I've ever met, will that be true? So what you actually have to have a handle on, either as an estimate or by analysing your results, is that when you do think a horse, to your perspective, is two to one, and it's available at four to one, how often does it win? Or what percentage profit do you make in that situation? So if, for example, you believe that, you're, that there's a margin of 10% when you take that price, or it might be that you're taking a price very early because you're able to get on at five, you might believe there's a 20% profit margin. But you've got to base your profit margin not on your perception of how, you, some, how you've assessed the price, 
but instead on what is a realistic estimate of what the price is based on what you think. And that, that will mean that the, your estimate of the true odds will be closer to the actual odds uh, than, just, than just your own opinion. But if you put that thought into it, ha have a look at the Kelly criterion. For me, it's a different challenge because as time's gone on, the bookmakers have got wary of, of bigger bets. Uh, and obviously, I've, you know, I, 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 my betting bank, if you like, has, has increased. Um, so I'm not in, my bets are restricted pretty much by what I can get on rather than any need to, um, uh, to, to preserve the bank. And so Kelly doesn't apply to me. But this, the challenge for me is uh, more about at what point are you taking a price that is a price that you've created by your own activity? Um, so the danger is if, if you're backing a horse at a certain price and then it's shortened up by uh, you know, a certain percentage, how much of that might have been what, what I've done? And is there a danger you're then taking your own price? Um, so those sorts of considerations. And the other consideration at, at, at the highest staking level is you don't always want to, to necessarily maximize your profit in that race. It may well be that a more subtle approach might make it easier to get your bets on the next day, the next month or whatever. So, um, yeah, th those sort of nuanced considerations come in uh, you know, at the highest staking level. I'm just got to chip in here from a personal interest. Would you not factor in your worst losing run and take that into account when you're picking your stakes? Yeah, well, the Kelly thing will give you things, but your actual worst losing run will be uh, yeah, affected by random factors. So the, the, the Kelly is more of a calculation based on average expectations. Um, but yeah, if, if, if that's, for some that might be too technical, but you, having a reasonable expectation of how things have gone in the past, that's not a bad rule of thumb, yeah. Okay, right, Brazza72, it says, Patrick's won a lot of money gambling, but does he think possibly his insistence on making decisions alone has held back his profit and loss compared to punters like Alan Woods, Bill Brenter and Joe Co, who built huge team syndicates to split the work and assess many different variables? <laughs> yeah, so perhaps don't keep reminding me of that. <laughs> um, not least because obviously those, those, those markets are operating differently uh, elsewhere where there were great big tote pools and no bookmakers. But... Although that's possibly true, you know, were that to have worked for me, um, I've had a very free life to be able to organise my time as I wanted. And, you know, I've had two very big setbacks in my life that took a while to, to refine my balance and possibly the fact that I had a very free existence where I could just stop um, put me in a better position to, uh, to, to refine that balance. Okay, Ben Ashmal would like to know, outside the fixture list, is there any other advice you'd give to the various bodies in racing? <laughs> well, people like the fact that I had a list before, so, so I have another list. <laughs> but we'll just briefly go back to fixtures. Sorry about this. Um, we have heard back from the, from the bookmaking industry, and there has been some talk on this subject. And a comment from the bookmaking industry included that, um, that they weren't actually seeking more racing anymore. Okay, well, finally, we might have reached that point, but um, that's like saying that, um, you know, amongst drinkers, you've, you've got drinkers to, to, to increase from three bottles of wine a week to 10 bottles of wine a week, and you're not now seeking 12. It's quite a good analogy, actually, because 10 bottles of wine a week, you can survive for quite a long time, but you are probably doomed in the end. Um, so there's a comparison there. Um, yeah, uh, it's still way too many bottles of wine. And... Um, Particularly fitting at the moment, I thought last week, Simon, that there were 31 flat meetings. It was a week with no jump racing, you know, I'm a bit of a fan of that, um, the, the concept of a break. Um, but yeah, they didn't need to fill in with not only all the jumps fixtures that you would have expected, but extra flat ones as well. Um, and so early in the season, you're basically passing a message to the punters there of be under no illusion. You have no hope of keeping up with all this. 
Um, there's been talk in the last day or two of field sizes. But to some extent, field sizes is shutting the, the stable door off its bolted because the lower field sizes stems from, amongst other things, reducing the popularity of the support by it being unfathomably large in terms of fixtures. Um, the other thing about field sizes is that, okay, we're reacting to that now, but I'm not claiming credit because there were many people saying it, many people saying 18 months ago that this was sure to happen, greatly reduced field sizes. And now we're sort of saying, well, now it's happened as, frankly, we knew it was going to. I mean, I was quoted as saying that very much smaller horse population was a certainty. That's what I said 18 months ago. And now we're talking about, as I say, reacting just to field sizes is too late in itself. Um, so, um, yeah, but at least there are some positive signs. Um, you know, there, there are, are some positive signs. I have had a little bit of contact with the BHA uh, and obviously there's, there's engagement with other people and that sort of thing. Um, and I have said I'm willing to meet and, and talk them through. One thing I need to stress here, this is not me saying I can prove this with maths. I'm saying that other people have uh, believe that they've proved their case with maths and that the maths is just wrong. This is not something that can be solved with maths. The evidence from example, for example, of, of, of the loss of market share, the evidence from the customers who are shrieking from the rooftops that they don't want this. And it's non-mathematical people coming and using what is frankly a mathematical argument that is just plain wrong. Um, but if a meet, if people do want a meeting, I'll always try to help with that if they want to, to hear that. And um, let's say if, um, if they wanted to hear the opposing view, then they should feel free to invite Martin Credis of Arc. And, um, and he could rigorously examine my points. And I would look forward to rigorously examining his. Um, he said, I think in the paper today, there was no real case for the reduction in fixture list. But that's a little rich in that there was no case for the increase in the first place. It was based on utterly flawed data analysis. It might have been a case for ARC, because ARC were the biggest beneficiary, I believe, in the, in the I might not, that's, that's the best I'm aware, but in the increase in fixtures, as I say, I don't have exact numbers on that, um, but they certainly benefited from that. But in terms of the racing industry, and if you look at the long-term outlook, five, 10 years from when this started, or from now, excess fixtures is a loser. Um, so yeah, let's hope further's done on that. Um, three other little things outside of fixtures. I'll finally stop talking about that. Um, first, the owners. If you're picking a trainer, and one of the factors you use is, does that trainer have a lot of winners? Um, then it should be not the number of winners, but the number of winners divided by the number of horses. I mean, maybe not as simple as that, but broadly speaking, be more interested in, is the trainer having winners per horse than just winners? It's, it's clear that a lot of people making their decisions do not build that in. Um, handicappers. Handicappers, I think you should spend less time engaging with trainers. I've met some marvellous trainers who have taught me so much and interesting things to say outside of racing. But um, when they talk about the handicapping of their horses, this is something to avoid. I would also advise owners, punts, whatever, if you do talk to trainers, try to steer away from, away from them talking about the handicapping of their horses. After five minutes, sometimes you feel your head's going to explode. <clears throat> After 10 minutes, you're worried that it's not going to explode. You just want it to be over quickly. Um, Essentially, handicapping a race is, is like um, you, you, know, you draw a regression line. And for people who are not familiar with that term, you're just drawing, it, roughly speaking, a line from the highest rated horse in the race to the lower rated horse in a way that fits in with the data points, the previous ratings of those horses. Well, when trainers talk about the handicapping of their horses, they always see the points below the regression line. That's the only points they can see. But when they're complaining that other people's horses are well handicapped, they only see the points above the regression line. And uh, yeah, generally speaking, the handicapping of horses would be better if there was just a formal appeal system, not a situation where trainers blag the handicappers and generally push them into methods that are less good than if they weren't involved. And the final one, bookmakers, 
I'm not convinced that this business of constantly playing with the place terms is as good as you think it is. Um, it's important in golf because it's very, very hard to back the winner in golf. And also in golf, the place terms are static. You're not constantly changing the number of places. But this business, if it starts out, you're expecting a quarter, first three, then you're getting a boost to a fifth, first four, and then there's a non-runner, so you're back worse than you started. And combined with a situation of, I'm not sure this has been thought through, that sort of some of the customers are going to be really irritated when you say those terms aren't available for them, or you don't want to lay in each way better, not just to the pros or the Sharpies. I'm just not sure this is as good as they think it is. It's making it overcomplicated. And the customers you really want are the ones that only really care about the price and don't even think about place fractions. It's not the same as golf where 10 places is really important. Punters are slightly in horse racing more focused on backing a winner. I think they're doing too much on that. Okay. And now Shane has got the double up. He's got another question. Um, how would you go about growing a small bank into something semi-pro from scratch in the modern betting world? Similar to what I said before, uh, I would keep the, uh, you know, I would keep the expenses low. Um, I would, uh, you know, uh, have another income, and I would um, be looking more towards, uh, rather than you know having to spend a huge amount of time and expense, sort of g grabbing prices and that sort of thing, finding sustainable edges that will last you into the future by by looking for areas where the market's wrong when it has finished moving. You know, towards the uh, towards the latter part of the day. Okay, um, Peter Robinson, where do you place the most emphasis on, or how do you rank the following in relation to a horse's chance? Trainer, jockey course, surface going, trip, handicap mark, information, price, perceived value, left hand, right hand, straight versus round course, all the above, are all the above assessed in the equation? In fact, how do you pick your winners? <laughs> um, well, that's as I sort of touched on the previous time. It's not an answer I can give because it's all about value. It's not about which is the most important factor. You can have one of those things. It might be the fourth most important, but if it, but it, but if it's the one where you're finding value, um, even if it doesn't, you know, then then that's more interesting. But the trouble is that if rightly or wrongly people have got some respect for my opinion, if I said, oh, my favourite thing is jockey, I think there's a real edge there. Even if I didn't explain how I did it, by attracting more attention to that 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 side of things then obviously prices would go down. Prices would go down about those where there was a, a, you know, a, an underestimated factor. Um, so, so within days or weeks of me making that statement, the value would ebb away. And, and, and because in the modern world you have to have lots of edges to, to do sufficiently well, um, yeah, you're just in a situation where the value would erode. Um, I did comment on this slightly more back in the day when I wrote the book because I was commenting on things that had worked in the past. So I was able to talk quite a bit about draw biases because they were something that was easy to make money with, you know, sort of many years ago. And since then, you know, the BHA and the courses have done you know, sort of a much better job in leveling those out. And the, and the clerks are much more aware. That's now a minefield. And, and so the reason I was able to talk about those winners and back based on the draw was because it wasn't a subject that was interesting to me anymore. It was really interesting then, but it became massively more difficult. But in terms of where you find your edges, Yes, I think the social media thing can be very useful for encouragement, for um, talking about the mental side, for general relaxation and chit-chat about the sport you're interested in. But if you're going to make it in the long term, you need to find some edges that you don't give away. Um, and that uh, it, in the end, chatting about what's good or bad in detail, in detail methodology, favours the bookmakers because it makes them, as part of these discussions, better able to price up 
and it means that the people that come on to them at 5 p.m. with the early moves are going to be more informed as well. So, yeah, do, don't be frightened to be, you know, yes, ultimately, whether you're a good person is probably going to be governed by matters outside horse racing. Um, don't feel obliged to give up your edges in horse racing because it, it's a hard enough game. Okay, now Paul Fitzgerald says, from the traumatic events you've experienced and lived through, is there one lesson that stands out above all and um, that you take from it? Or alternatively, a core belief that you've always had that has been reinforced by what you've gone through and he wishes you continued success? Yeah, well, thank you for that. Um, I suppose when you go back to those sorts of events, um, the thing I've learned is you can come back. Um, that, but you have to be patient. And <clears throat> in those really tricky times, and people are going to have their own very tricky times, it's not just me, uh, and things might be completely outside racing, personal life, family, etc. Um, that sometimes you have to just hold it together and you have to be patient and, and just wait and go through a period of, yeah, just, just enough is hold, it's enough and hard enough to hold it together and then come back when you're ready. Okay, part three, Patrick. Templeton Peck wants to know, what do you think would be in the government's gambling review and what would be in his if you were to produce one? I haven't spent a lot of time looking at what's coming or well, I have to think about it. I haven't got into the detail of where exactly where it's pitched of what to expect. But the thing I've said here is that we really want to try to promote the idea that gambling is potentially harmful, like a lot of enjoyable things like alcohol, etc. Nobody should deny that. Nobody should imply that betting on horses is perfect. It's not without risk. But there are levels of harm. Uh, and that you know, there is a very strong case to be made that the likes of online slots, online slots are a lot more dangerous, um, that they happen 24-7, and they happen a lot more often per minute and that sort of thing, uh, and hence they're, they're a lot more risky. Uh, and that's proven in the statistics in terms of the addiction. So um, the, the, the concept that there should be different limits and different restrictions is a very clear one, that, that you should have, you know, that there is a greater amount of risk in, in the likes of um, online slots. Now, potentially horse racing stands to benefit from that, if it, if it successfully makes the case that, yes, there is risk, but the risk is lower. Now, this is not a new principle. This is enshrined in law already. If you look at alcohol, you know, bottles of spirits carry greater tax because there are more alcohol, more risk. And if you look at drugs, they're class A, class B, class C um, in terms of the level of prohibition where things are actually banned. So there is a strong case to be made there. And horse racing stands to benefit if... Um, people come from higher risk activities and get involved in sports gambling in, in, in horse racing and sports. Um, so, and also that then is a double effect, that if the bookmakers face a situation where people are more restricted in their betting on the likes of online slots and less with horse racing, they move from the current situation where they try to take our punters and convince them to go into casinos to a situation where the reverse may apply. And they say, no, we'd actually prefer you to bet on sport and they start promoting casino people coming to sports. So I think it's very important to try and make that case. It's got to be done in a very nuanced way uh, of making it clear that no one's saying that horse racing gambling is without risk, but that as with elsewhere, that there, there are levels of risk. Okay, now t Tony at Cool Cannon on uh, Twitter would like to know, you'd like to know what type of a flat race you would recommend for an individual punter to specialise in? Um, yeah, so... Um, Starting, not everybody was, especially on the flat. I, I'm very much flat. I, 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 I've always made little, you know, made no bones about that. Except for suits, it's slightly more technical. So in that first, some people have a choice of flat or jumps. You may try to do both, but you don't have to, you know, because it does pretty much go all, all year round, too much of it. 
Um, flat racing probably more technical. Um, I, I do occasionally have a go at the jump people. I've got into trouble again, you know, recently. Um, <clears throat> it's the first time I ever hadn't had a letter printed in the Racing Post. In fairness, I was thought it was very unlikely. I wasn't expecting the print. I was more just doing it for a laugh. But um, it was also the shortest letter I've ever, ever written. It said, um, following the wonderful reception for last week's jumps pullout, is there any chance that you could uh, publish the jumps in an easy-to-remove section on a daily basis? And uh, I did send that to a few people, you know, connected with the jumps world, and they're all furious with me now. Um, but um, in terms of handicaps or non-handicaps, yes, I think that again suits the personality type. If you're, um, if you're, you know, a a bit like I said about the artistic creative, if you're somebody who's very analytical, you know, you're more likely to uh, be more interested in handicaps. And if you're somebody that, for example, that made a a subjective, more artistic judgment about a horse, uh, you know, in, from from race reading, it might be you favour non-handicaps because then you might only have that horse and two others to assess. It was not as technical as one where you've got 14 if you've got a very strong opinion about one horse. So yeah, I think it, de it depends on your skill set. Okay, now at, at Frack1 from Twitter, imagine you're playing roulette in a casino on the Vegas Strip. After how many successive reds would you start raising your stake? I think that depends on... Um, <laughs> what the question means, firstly. Um, so generally speaking, you wouldn't change your stake. Um, but I'm not sure they're implying whether there are lots of reds you'd suddenly want a black, because you think, well, I think that's, people can think that way. They think that after so many reds, it must be time for a black. But black doesn't get more likely, definitely not. So you can say that the chance of 10 consecutive reds is 1 in 1,024. Um, so after 9 reds, surely it's more likely. But 9 reds was you know, 1 in 512 to start with. So you've already got all but the last 50% of the improbability in there. So it's still evens, and so you wouldn't change at all. If you wanted to get slightly into the world of uh, game shows and ghosts and go goats and, and cars and goats, and I'll be very briefly, I promise, there could come a point when you could think about going with red. It, this is not something you'd want to devote 10 years to, but if you studied all Las Vegas casinos and started getting statistics, you might eventually, after 10 years of legwork, find a biased wheel. So there could come a point when you've got that many reds, you start to think, is there a problem with the wheel here? Now, you never get to a situation where it's six to four, but you might get to a situation where uh, you did, there was evidence, whether it be dirt or damage or whatever, that you might get a biased wheel. Um, but that's where, again, it's understanding the nuances, that if that were to happen, I think it would be a, a very time-consuming experiment, but if you, you know, just as a sort of a, you know, a, a logical exercise, it would depend on where it was. It wouldn't happen at the Bellagio, but maybe in some decent size but smaller out-of-town casino in the suburbs, um, there might be more likely that, the, that the, the wheel wouldn't be functioning as well and wouldn't be monitored and cared for as well. So it is possible, um, but no, I wouldn't be. I, I would be sticking to the view of keeping your stakes very small and assuming it's always evened. Okay, now Samuel would like to know if you've ever experienced a losing run that made you question whether you'd lost your edge. Not my long-term edge. I always would have been confident I had a long-term edge, but there certainly are periods in which you might think I might not have an edge today because I'm uh, affected by the results. Uh, you know, there could come a point when you just, hopefully I'm okay at that, but not perfect. And there would be times when you just get very frustrated. It might cause you to make the wrong decision some of the time. But that's where I said you've got to double down. Double down, until, not until your stakes. You've got to keep your take, stakes under control and very likely smaller when you're not going well. And as I say, if, if it gets problematic, very small, not at all. Um, but double down on the work and just dig yourself out of it but yes do be aware there may be periods in which your 
um, in which you're performing less well and, and definitely build that in with your staking. Okay, and if Philip Ellis would like to know, how do you feel about a punter who backs a form horse that is beaten into second by a prepared touch? Is this fair? Well, this is something I mentioned obviously last time that my view has changed on this. Um, once people say, well, you know, is that, you know, he landed these 100 to 1 touches and there was only 100 to 1 shot and that was a horse that only had one previous run when the, the stable was heavily out of form. But we did have some that were, you know, planned gambles and I've explained the, the detail behind that. Also, perhaps when I said 10 years ago, I should also mention more like 15 plus years ago. And that's when my view changed because those started before the exchanges even existed. When the, the, the view was that the view of the basic industry and punting, you know, gamblers in particular, they loved putting one over them. All the talk was about, oh, great, that's one put over the bookmakers. That changed once exchange got going and gradually the viewpoint changed in those first few years. And it wasn't many years after the exchange started that I stopped that. Um, as I say, I operated one of the rules I was happy with in, in not giving negative instructions to jockeys and that sort of thing. But I do think that time has changed that. And now that you have punters in those two-way markets, I think you know, in, in the last 10 years, there's been a strong move away from that. Uh, and I now support even more strongly the, you know, the tougher regulations on riding and the, the hope that more people in the, in the racing industry will gradually see that in a two-way market, that sort of thing is no longer popular. Um, just to clarify another thing, a couple of people said I'd, I'd said that punters love corruption. They don't. I was saying that a now quite long retired trainer had once said that, but I did not support that, uh, that, that, uh, you know, that punters don't like that. And that, that's the point I'm making that, um, yeah, back in the day, people were perhaps more motivated. I might be able to join in this gamble. Um, but now, as I say, I think, I think the move is moving away from that and hopefully, hopefully others will. Okay. Chris Poole, quite simple. Have you ever been knocked? Yeah, early on. Early on, there was one bad incident that uh, it was a sum, I think, of about £13,000 at a time when that you know, really mattered. Not that it wouldn't matter now, but it, would, it mattered more. Um, it was probably 20% of what I had and 40% of the liquid you know, funds that I had. And um, it was a case I'd been sloppy because it was somebody I'd met and then not had contact with for a year. Somebody quite well-known-ish at the time but I didn't do my homework and I found out after the situation became problematic that he'd failed to pay a lot of people as much as a year earlier. And I just, uh, yeah, so that's again, comes back to be careful who you trust and, and check and check. Is it, can I ask, is that a bookmaker or a sticker on her? Uh, it wasn't really either of those. Uh, it wasn't a bookmaker, uh, but no, it was somebody in the, uh, in, in the punting world, yeah. Okay, now Stephen Robinson, he would like to know, what would Patrick do with inside information he obtained if he knew breaches of the rules of racing were scheduled to take place? For example's sake, if jockeys had colluded beforehand regarding finishing positions. Um, I don't really get any inside information anymore, um, or hardly any. Um, the rules are very strict about inside information, that you shouldn't receive even about positive information, you shouldn't you know, be passing any or receive any, that sort of thing. And I, I stick literally to the letter of that. I'm quite happy making my own mind up and I operate on that basis of analysing and if the market moves for inside information, maybe the horse the less fancied might go to a really good price. Um, so I know that informally lots of people do share bits of positive information and that there was taught that the authorities are only really interested in lay information. But as I choose to go for the letter of the law, even where I've got horses, um, in the majority of cases, I turn down the information. So for example, in the case of Ralph Beckett, who I've, you know, as I mentioned last time, I have horses. It's Rafe, surely, isn't it, Rafe? 
Oh, no, 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 Simon. I think he prefers Ralph. I think he prefers it. I mean, <laughs> admittedly, he, he, he says he doesn't, and quite vociferously, I, I, I would say, but I think deep down he probably feels that Ralph makes him more of a man of the people. Oh, I think you should probably go with it, Simon. Anybody looking to interview him? But maybe if, you, if you're moving in with, you know, are you free for an interview, Ralph? I, I would maybe just increase your social distancing by, uh, you know, a metre or three just to be on the safe side. Um, but anyway, getting back onto that, that as they, the, the, in that situation, I've, I've said to uh, you know, the, the man um, that um, I, I, not to give me any information um, and that I prefer that freedom of being able to make my own mind up uh, and, um, and, and being completely free as a result. So I do receive a little bit that I'm fully entitled to as an owner, but 99% of my punting would be on no information whatsoever. And I, certainly in that example of where there was a corrupt situation going on, I would advise people to steer well clear, you know. Okay, now Jack Adcock would like to know, in your book you mentioned you like Indian food. What is your go-to order at your local curry house? I would say a garlic chilli chicken. Um, we'll have naan bread. Probably keep it simple with an onion bhaji. I think that's a very good barometer of how good a place is. And if I was going all out, probably a mango kulfi afterwards. But if you want me to do the Patrick thing and overanalyse it, I'd say the absolute perfect, if you're willing to put the place to trouble, is rather than just having the chicken in with the, the go for a chicken slash lick so you get the sizzling plate with all the unctuous food on that the sort of that comes sizzling to the table and then ask for your garlic chili sauce on the side that gets you the best of both worlds then people are saying well hang on what about this health is wealth thing you know but that's okay once in a while all you do is fast the next day don't eat anything until you know intermittent fasting is really good for you so don't eat anything until the evening the next day then it's guilt free okay and finally scott murray he would like to know, uh, where would you say you rank amongst UK uh, punters? And would you be at the top or are there others in front of you? I'd definitely not be at the top. There are others in, who've operated in the sports markets that are way more liquid, who are way in front of me. Um, so I've done okay. And I wouldn't, as I said, I wouldn't necessarily swap to, you know, people who said, why don't I go into the city? You know, and, and wouldn't my skills have um, been much more productive in more liquid markets? Well, maybe, but there's no proof of that. But also hellish long hours you know whether uh, I wouldn't have had anywhere near as enjoyable life it's not all about money um, but in terms of if you purely rated the amount of success in gambling then yeah there's people the way in front of me and again people can say well what happens if you've gone into those betting and football or something like that but and if you wound the clock back maybe although I've had great experience in horse racing maybe if I, if I could have foreseen which I failed to do where the more liquid markets would be maybe I could have given that a go um, and I might have done okay but you know, filling an application form isn't winning or being placed in the tournament. So, uh, yeah, I'm, you know, I've done OK, so we'll, we'll have to be happy with that. OK, well, Patrick Veach, thank you very much. No worries. New Betting People interviews are published every week at Star Sports. Exclusive interviews with the key people from the world of sports betting. Check out our full library of interviews at starsportsbet.co.uk. Begambleaware.org. Over 18 only.